The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Some of you might remember that I was uh, talking about the Paramis before I left at the end of October. And the next one of these beautiful qualities of the heart, this is a well-known list in the early Buddhist tradition, the beautiful qualities that support crossing the floods, the outflows of attachment to sense experience and the attachment to delusion and a sense of a fixed self and attachment to becoming. These are the outflows or the influxes or translated in different ways, asawas. So what allows us to cross the flood? Well, one of them is resoluteness, determination, resolve. Aditana is the Pali phrase for this quality. And notice in your mind right now that it can be quite triggering to hear that we're, you know, that we're responsible for resoluteness or resolve or determination. Because I don't know about you, but it seems like I've been betrayed a number of times when I felt resolved, like, oh, I'm not going to eat that cookie. <laughs> or, you know, I'm going to sit every day, or I'm not going to gossip anymore. Or... And then, lo and behold, there we are, eating the cookie, or whatever. It is, and uh, I'm not against cookies, by the way. But you know what I mean. And then it, the thing is, we felt so invested in the resolve, and then it can really hurt to realize that even though I told myself, I've got to do this or I'm not going to do that, there I am again, doing that one thing that I told myself I wasn't going to do. So it's, I think it would be really useful for myself and maybe for all of us to take a couple of weeks to be very reflective about how the mind uses determination, resolve, this wholehearted commitment, and how it uses it unskillfully and how we can use it, learn how to use it skillfully. Because otherwise it's just a setup for judgment and more betrayal. And I think we're also, interestingly, afraid of real change. <laughs> like, um, I don't know if anybody caught uh, Richie Davidson and uh, the Surgeon General were interviewed on the radio show On Being this week, uh, Krista Tippett's show on public radio. And uh, I forget the Surgeon General's name, Vivek is his first name but I'm forgetting his last name. And then Richie Davidson is a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and um, founder of the Healthy Mind Center there at the university, quite well-known neuroscience, who's done a lot of research with meditation, mindfulness meditation. And um, yeah, just this, uh, one of the real discoveries in these last couple decades in neuroscience is how this plasticity of the mind. And of course, there's that famous teaching from the Buddha, like, I, this is going to be a rough paraphrase, but 
if this profound change, this real movement towards happiness isn't possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. But because it's possible, I'm asking you to do it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this is very encouraging, but it's it comes with a sense of responsibility in a way. Feeling hopeless is uh, a way that we let ourselves off the hook to be responsible for our happiness. You know, we have an arrogant conviction that, you know, whatever my general level of happiness or well-being is, that's, you know, not in my hands. It's either an external, based on external conditions that I'm not in charge of, or it was, just came with the territory of being born in the way I was born, with this kind of genetic makeup and this sort of cultural conditioning. But it's like, uh, yeah, it's a little bit um, a cop-out to feel like I can't do anything about my particular level of happiness or unhappiness. And so then when we hear, you know, that, oh God, we're going to take a couple weeks and look at the teachings on resoluteness, determination, resolve, it's like, oh, I'm not sure I want to be responsible for being able to change my life. Because then I might actually have to do it. <laughs> you know, like if it starts to make sense that who I am, what I am is plastic, it's, it's malleable, then... I have no excuse for being a miserable or arrogant or um, oh poor me human being, whatever our particular pattern of suffering might be, prominent, predictable pattern of suffering, right? It will be different for each of us. But we won't have that convenient excuse. And I'm not saying no one, I think, wise would be saying that uh, outer conditions don't matter. Clearly they matter. But how we relate, the attitude we use to relate, how we understand our deeper view, how the mind makes up meaning in our life, all of that is always in play. It's not fixed. I mean, there are habits for sure. There are tendencies. Those tendencies can be quite well-established, but it's never fixed. And one way that helps us understand this, that gets revealed in meditation practice when the mind is more subtle, is whatever our particular mood is, our particular way of relating, our particular attitude, whatever it is, it's getting created moment by moment by moment. So whatever sort of stance my mind is constructing right now, it's got to reconstruct it in the next moment and in the next moment. And one of the things we see on longer retreats, and you can see this just in regular daily life too, I'm sure, it's just we're less likely to catch it, but it happens. And it's just a matter of being interested and being mindfully aware in those moments. But we'll see on a retreat, for example, like the mind is in a real vortex of self-hatred or self-judgment and it's just spinning, it's spinning and there's some space around it so just enough to know that I'm really suffering, this is really hard, the mind is really caught, 
I know I'm caught, but I'm still caught, right? So have you had that experience? Probably most of us, some version of that experience. And if we hang in there, that doesn't mean we're trying to fix it even. Hanging in there means we're just aware that it's like this, that the mind is in a terrible vortex of self-hatred or self-blame, um, you complaining about life, whatever the particular obsessive pattern might be. It knows it, it knows it. And in that tracking of our hell realms, tracking it, tracking it, just being aware it feels like this, not judging it, not believing it, we'll see that it, like everything else, arises and ceases. And there is, it's hard to convey how transforming it is when the mind, wisdom, is there, awake, aware, in the moment that there's the hell realm, the obsessive thinking, worrying, whatever, it's there, it's there, and then it's not there. Because that seeing the heavy state disappear doesn't make sense within the heavy state. Like when I'm in an, a, a heavy obsession of self-hatred or whatever it might be, could be lost. Oh, if only, then I'll be happy. But when I'm in that, part of that whole mind state is, this is me. This is me in some kind of essential sense. So it doesn't make sense that that whole construction of self around that obsession, around that particular negative view or whatever it might be, it doesn't make sense for it to cease. How can that be? That's me. And then it ends. And then there's another me. <laughs> you know, then you're reborn as, you know, in that next moment as, well, that was interesting. You know, the mind was in that weather system for a couple minutes or a couple hours or a couple days generally. I mean, not always. And that's part of the lie is that it may be an obsession, obsessive pattern that the mind keeps returning to. But part of the lie, as soon as the mind returns to it, is it's always been this way. Even though actually there were a lot of moments it wasn't that way. But the mind imagines that it was always here, this worry, this pattern of, you know, shame or self-hatred or whatever it is. Hating somebody else, wanting revenge. Whatever that locked-in pattern is, it has this essential lie that this is referring to something that's permanent, a permanent me, a permanent person who has this, relates to this, is this, is associated with this. So when we see it cease, it changes. But this really introduces to the mind, to the view that the mind has, this idea of plasticity, that change is possible. And it's really important. But it isn't easy. Like I said, there's going to be some pushback. And part of that pushback is we've, most of us, most of the time, we're really comfortable with the idea that there's nothing I can do. Because it gives us the excuse to give up. And just kind of, well, just rely on interesting food and good TV programs 
and other things to kind of get me through the day and through the week and through the month. But I don't have to, God, I'm so glad I don't have to deal with this idea of becoming happy or free or loving. You know, it's like, boy, I certainly don't want that heavy trip, like, because it's just one more thing for me to fail at. And that's all I need, you know. So we're really looking for an out so we don't have to care about our life and really have this sense that, you know what, just maybe there's something to do with this life that is profoundly relevant and possible for me and all my limitations and all my imperfections and all my lacking the support, like I don't have an awakened teacher at my beck and call who I can, you know, who tells me what to do and what not to do. I just have my very imperfect conditioned mind and our very imperfect, you know, spiritual resources around us in our very imperfect society, you know, my imperfect body that hurts in the way that it does and all these other limited structures. So this is why we need this teaching on resoluteness and why we'll spend a couple weeks looking at it. Because it, you know, part of what we'll do is just be on the lookout for the shadows. I mentioned it in the guided sit, you know, because they get acted out as trying too hard. And all the ways we try too hard where we're naive, like even though change is really possible, we're naive about, we just want to get there. We don't, we don't want to sort of plant the seeds and be in it for the long haul. We just want results. So we say, so oh God, I'll just, it's not going to be pleasant changing myself, transforming myself. So I'm just going to get it over with and be done with it. And that's just a self-view, meaning it's ignorance. This idea that there's a somebody who doesn't want to do the long, steady, hard work of transforming ourselves and transforming the world. As if there's somebody who actually has the world on their shoulders and doesn't want the world on their shoulders. See, there's a presumption there that it will be really tiresome for me to do what needs to be done to take care of myself and to take care of my world. And the other then, you know, the more obvious is where we are complacent in one way or another, just sort of on autopilot in our lives, because it's just really, like I've been saying, really convenient to imagine there's really not much for me to do in my life, but just to kind of go through the motions and grab pleasantness when I can and deal with the unpleasantness when I can have pleasantness and just, you know, just do the best I can to make choices that are relatively skillful so I get some pleasure to take the edge off of life. That's what most of us are doing most of the time. I mean, that's my way of describing what most of us are doing most of the time. So, you know, we often begin, like if we're going to build some resoluteness in our life, 
It can't come from outside. That's, you know, that's why we've been betrayed so much. We've basically got inspired by a good Dharma talk, for example, or reading a good book. And we're just like, but it's, it's really uh, based on a lot of naivete, like not really understanding. So the way to understand where determination and wholeheartedness and resoluteness, determination come from, is it, it comes from this, um, I mean, ultimately, it comes from what life has directly taught our mind. So what has this mind, heart, felt and observed from life, how it works. And in Buddhism, we call this the law of karma. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about the law of karma, but it simply means that whatever this is, there's a lawfulness to it. It's not random. Whatever this is, our life, this mind and body, it's lawful. There's a lawfulness to it. And this lawfulness can be discerned cause and effect, basically. Conditionality is a more subtle way. It's a more nuanced way to talk about cause and effect, the lawfulness. There's a conditional nature. And there's, of course, part of the causes and conditions that are lawfully unfolding here are not in my control at all. But some of this lawful unfolding is very much related to how the heart right now is showing up and relating and understanding. And that's what we hone into, hone into this, oh, it really matters how I'm paying attention, like what I pay attention to and how I pay attention, what attitude I have. Because out of that way of relating comes intention, motivation, and action. Thoughts, speech, actions, deeds in the world, all of which set everything else in motion. So if I'm relating, if I'm understanding, if I'm making up meaning that's not in alignment with the way it is, then my actions are going to be distorted. And if I'm relating and acting in accordance with the way it is, then I'll be harmonizing with this great churning of causes and conditions, this conditional unfolding. How do we harmonize with it? How do we move from disharmony to harmonizing with reality? Well, and then, see, then it starts to make a lot of sense. Oh, I have to pay attention, <laughs> you know, not to get some sort of secret answer, but it's this ongoing moment to moment harmonizing with the moment so that our understanding is harmonizing with what intimacy is revealing, our, our attitude and then the motivations, the intentions, and actions that flow out of one's understanding. All is harmonizing with nature, with the totality of whatever this is. You know, nature, in Buddhism you might know, we call it Dharma or Dhamma, is the Pali. The way it is, things the way they are. 
And luckily we don't have to map out every nook and cranny of Dhamma the way it is. We just have to be responsible for what's here and now. And this is interesting, like about awareness, because it's so central, awareness is so central to this. We almost always, this is a mistake where we think, okay, I'm going to be aware, so let me direct my attention to reality. So let's just check, everyone, with your own experience right now, this is a little reflection. If some internal or external authority figure said, be aware, <laughs> you know, it's like the present moment is who we are right now. It isn't some object out there that we put our attention on, like the breath or the body even, although those can be part of a technique. But it's easy, always easy to, uh, for the technique to be distorted by wrong view. So what is right view, <laughs> like when we say be present, is to realize that this moment, the present moment, is who we are right now. This is the present moment. So we don't actually have to direct the attention anywhere. We just have to remember this life, this experience. This is the present moment. This experience of mind, sometimes we say in early Buddhism. This is a moment of mind, or if you prefer, this is a moment of heart. And we're responsible for being connected. And we will suffer to whatever degree we're mostly disconnected in the moments of our lives. So just check right now with your own experience how much effort and what kind of effort does it take to be aware of who we are. Not the idea of who I am, but this direct, immediate experiencing of who I am. I mean, one thing we could say for sure, it's not far away, right? It's right here. And it's such a relief that we don't have to like choose what to be aware of, where we could fail. It's here, this. The, the reason why this is so important, it just goes to the real root of the possibility of profound transfer, transformation in our life and in our world. Like it can only happen here and now, but the truth is we're not generally aware of here and now. We're lost in thought. And even when we feel like we're addressing the pain and suffering in our lives or the pain and suffering in the world, we're not connected with the pain and suffering of what's here and now. We're in a construction, in a virtual world, so to speak. And change can't happen. Real change won't happen there. It can only happen when we're connected 
I don't know if you've looked at in the handout, um, there's a chart of these 10 paramis we've been studying. And Steve Armstrong has come up with a phrase um, from the tradition where he talks about all of these 10 paramis, these beautiful qualities of the heart, like generosity and moral sensitivity and wisdom and wise effort and kindness and equanimity and patience and renunciation, truthfulness, that might be all of them, and then of course resoluteness that we're studying, that they can all be understood as letting go. So in terms of resoluteness as letting go, he says we're letting go of the willful doubt, wavering, and indecision. So real resolve arises from being connected because when we're connected, one of the things we're going to connect with is this cumulative felt wisdom. In Buddhism, we call it hiri otapa, the sort of wholesome concern, wholesome regret, what life has taught us, what the conditional lawfulness of life has taught us. Oh, honey, don't do that. That doesn't work very well when you do that. Right? Or this will work. This feels right. right? In, in English, we, we might translate Hiri Otapa as conscience or conscience. I don't know if you remember, Joseph Goldstein used to quote from uh, Jan Martel, uh, who wrote the book Life of Pi, and then they made that into a movie. I don't know if people have read the book or seen the movie. It's uh, Both are quite good, I think. And uh, in the book, I don't think it's in the movie, there's this quote, to choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. To choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. And again, it's this um, giving ourselves an excuse to take responsibility for our well-being, our happiness, and the well-being and happiness of the world around us. Because it's complicated. It is complicated, and it will take time. Another image in the tradition that's used is just like the power of a seed. You know, a little acorn given the appropriate conditions, can turn into a massive oak tree. And if we have a hundred acorns and some time in our hand, some of them are really going to grow up. And this is the thing, you know, when we're really hurting, when we're really being spun around by our feelings of betrayal and our habits of hatred and lust and idealism, distraction. And then we notice how disconnected and unpleasant all that is. Then we want a quick fix. Right? So this is, so even if we do bump into a good system like the teachings from the Buddha, we'll rush it in a way that even though we have some real faith initially and enthusiasm and we're willing to work hard, but because we're expecting results quick, you know, and then we feel betrayed and then we just dump the whole system.
oh, I knew it was a setup. And then we start mistrusting whenever we feel enthusiastic. And this is true in terms of love and relationship and jobs and spiritual undertakings. It's like, oh, I've been burnt too many times. And there's just too many good TV programs. So I'll go, I'll go with what's more direct, more immediate. I'll entertain myself with interesting food and interesting conversations, interesting books, interesting media. And I'll fill my life up with that because that I can do. I can distinguish between what will be entertaining and what is not entertaining. And I'll just do, I'll take my chances that I can hop from one thing that's relatively entertaining and as it gets boring, hop to the next thing, hop to the next thing. And we do that with spiritual practices too. Yeah, this teacher really is getting me excited. I'll stick with them for a while. Oh, I'm kind of getting to know their shtick. I think I'll move on and try somebody else. And we do that with practices, and centers, and lineages, and partners, and pets, and one of the things that breaks my heart, I have, some of you who know me well know, I, even though we've always had a cat, uh, Wynne and I, in our 30-some years of living together, um, most of those years at least, uh, I have a real problem with the whole pet industry in the world, in our country. And uh, one of the things that, for whatever reason, really touches my heart deeply is when you see somebody with a pet and they've lost interest in it. They're just too busy or the pet's gotten old or just like a married couple, they don't get along anymore with their pet. And, uh, and then the pet, you know, is sort of stuck in this relationship, in this home, whatever, not really being cared for. And there are a lot, I mean, this is my imagination, there are probably a lot of these kinds of situations going on. And this is part of this restless, hopping around, not really digging in. Maybe this pet is good enough. Maybe this job is good enough. Maybe this relationship is good. Maybe the conditions in my life are good enough, not perfect, to realize the happiness, the peace, the love that is available. That actually in the end isn't really based on these conditions. It's based on how we understand, how we relate, how we're showing up. Not on who our partner is, not on what pet we have, not where we live, or how we're being treated even. As important as those things are in a relative sense, ultimately, spiritually, wisdom, love can transcend any condition. That's why in Buddhism, we talk about the fruit of our practice as being unconditioned. It's not dependent on the particular conditions. So this first talk, you know, I'm really uh, trying to uh, break any fixed views we might have about taking care of ourselves and the world in the deepest possible ways. One image that keeps coming to my mind, some of you have heard me use this image before, but if we have one of those super tankers, 
some of us who live in Minnesota see these huge uh, uh, ships that uh, ship the ore from the iron mines and other kinds of mines in northern Minnesota, and then they go out of the Duluth Superior Harbor and through Lake Superior and the other Great Lakes and out through the St. Lawrence Seaway to the wherever they go in the world. It's one of the bigger ports in the, in the country, the amount of weight that gets shipped. And you can imagine it's not so easy to turn one of these very, you know, these huge and heavy boats. If you had to turn it around, you know, it would take some time. But if something's going, like if our habit energies have a lot of momentum, like one of those huge ships, a couple football fields long, tons and tons of stuff, got some momentum moving forward, and we just apply a regular, systematic, persistent pressure just on the side of it, that ship will turn around. It doesn't even need to be a big push. It just needs to be a steady effort. Anything can be transformed. Nothing in this world, this relative world, is fixed. It just seems fixed. And one of the real stopping points, of course, is the arrogant belief, this will never change. So this week, just as some homework, really be on the lookout for any little and big times you say some version of, or think some version of, this will never change. Like, how do you know that? <laughs> and when did you become the expert about all things? And I'm not saying that, oh yeah, I can change this. No, but just like to have some humility, like, I wonder if something can be done here. I wonder what that would be. Like, what would be one thing, one seed that could be planted here that might bear fruit in the transformation from what to me seems really a burden or difficult or unskillful cause for suffering to something that was healing and transforming. What might be one thing we can do? And I'll just leave us with three suggestions from the Buddha. And this is a famous, simple, uh, essential teaching. It's really a teaching to memorize. This is what, like, you know, if we had enough <clears throat> confidence and faith, in some way I really think this is true, like if we just screamed out with, perfect integrity. I don't know what the hell to do. I'm really suffering. I really need help. Any beneficent, wise beings out there, internally, externally, please help me. What do you think they would say? Well, here's what the Buddha would say. Dana sila bhavana. Those are the Pali words. I like remembering it that way, but dana, some of you know that word. Generosity. Sila is this moral sensitivity, caring about harming. And bhavana is to cultivate a wise and good heart. A sensitive heart, a stable and sensitive heart. 
This, the, in Buddhism, in early Buddhism, this is the basis, the foundation of all that is good. Not just in a deeper spiritual sense, but in a very real, practical sense. If you want more good in your life, dana sila bhavana. And, and as we build confidence, then this is, you know, your own version of these three things is what we can resolve on. I don't know much, but I'm pretty sure that stinginess is not the way. So I'm curious about generosity, contentedness. I don't know much, but justifying causing harm to myself and others doesn't seem to be the way. So being sensitive, morally sensitive about how I might be complicit in causing harm to myself and others, maybe that's the way. I don't know much, but having a dull, insensitive, deluded, arrogantly certain mind doesn't seem helpful. <laughs> so I'm going to cultivate humility and sensitivity and clarity and stability of heart and mind. And see if this is in the direction of transformation. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.